Father in heaven, we thank you for the chance to be here today, Lord. A lot of things going on. A lot of people in the community doing other things today, but we are here. You've called us to this place for this moment, for this time. There's a table set behind me that represents the broken body and the blood of Jesus. Today we have the chance, once again, to testify to our faith. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit will be with us, will be in this service, will be in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin today where we ended last Sabbath. And by the way, what a fabulous service last Sabbath. Thank you, Will, so much for the work you did to get the choir together and uh, that they were able to sing and be a part of the service. And thank you, Justin, for all you did to coordinate and and the song you and your group did. It was an amazing day. Uh, Our hearts thrilled at the reality. We sorrowed with the loss of Jesus but rejoiced at the resurrection. And we ended with the words about the resurrection from Mark chapter 16. We've been in the book of Mark for several weeks now in this series we're calling Remarkable, Amazing Stories out of the book of Mark. We'll probably have to come back and do some more of that because this series is at its end, but the book of Mark has a lot more to teach us. So we'll we'll drag that name out again one of these days and spend more time in the book of Mark. But I want to take us this morning as we start to the very end of the book of Mark, Mark chapter 16, And this is where we ended last Sabbath. Verse 1, now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now we read this last Sabbath, and and this this is where this particular a story ends, and it ends kind of abruptly here in the book of Mark, that Jesus is raised, the women find out about it, but they go back and don't say anything. Now, it's kind of a strange way for this story to be told, but now you're looking, if you have your Bible open, you see that there's also verses 9 through 20. But here's the thing about verses 9 through 20. Depending on what Bible you have, you very likely have some sort of a note there in your Bible, whether it's an asterisk or a parenthesis or something like this, that will tell you as you look at this that verses 19 through 20 don't appear in two of the very important manuscripts that have been found of the book of Mark. The manuscripts, they actually have names. One of them is called the Codex Sinaiticus, and the other is called the Codex Vaticanus. 
So they give them all these different names and so forth. So just a little background on how we get the Bible as we have it. They have found in various places uh, different manuscripts of these ancient works that have come down to our day. And by the way, it's quite remarkable uh, if you compare the number of manuscripts of Bible books that have been found compared to any other book in literature, it's not even close. There are so many more manuscripts of the books of the Bible that exist than any other ancient literature. And it's very interesting uh, how many of the different ones there are, and generally they're almost identical, but occasionally there'll be a little difference here or a little difference there that develops over time. Just think about the different translations we have, how there's a difference here and there's a difference there. You can see how that would develop over time. There are so many of them, and they go back so close. So it's kind of an interesting point that that the book of Mark comes to the end of verse 8, and then a couple of the important manuscripts don't have anything beyond that. Now, why is that? Well, as we've been going through the book of Mark, if you've been following along and paying attention, one of the things you notice about Mark is that he, he very much speaks in a chronological manner. And in fact, he will very often say, then immediately this happened. Then this happened. Then immediately this happened. Then this happened. Everything about the book is this, is this continuous story that starts and flows through the life of Jesus. And the assumption you would make reading it is all of these things happened in a chronological order. But a very strange thing happens when you get to verse 9 of chapter 16. This pattern is broken. Verse 9 of chapter 16 says this, Now when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned, as they mourned and wept, and when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. All right, so that, that's fine in and of itself, but if you actually put it in the context of what I just read you, it's kind of different, Right? Because what I just read you was early in the morning, uh, Mary and Mary Magdalene and Salome went to the tomb. You get a whole narrative of the process going to the tomb. They arrive, they see the young man. The young man says, Jesus isn't here. And they're terrified and they leave. And, and verse 8 tells us none of the women told anyone, right? The very next verse We don't hear anything about Mary or Salome. We only hear about Mary Magdalene, who we heard about before. Only this time, she literally sees Jesus, and she literally goes and tells the disciples, and they don't believe. So you can understand why people, when they've read that manuscript, said, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like the way this book is gone. But what does it sound like? Have you ever heard that story of Mary Magdalene before? Is that out of the blue? Do you remember the story in the book of John? After Jesus is raised, what does he do? He appears to Mary Magdalene, and then she goes and tells the disciples, right? So the interesting thing that people noticed about this is verses 9 through 11 is actually just a condensed version of John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. It's not a new story, but it's a condensed version. And it goes on. Then you get to verse 12. After that, Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Does that sound familiar at all? Is there a story where Jesus, after he's raised, appears to two people walking in the country who don't recognize him immediately? 
But then after they've been with him for a little while, they do. And then they go back to Jerusalem, right? And they tell. This is a condensed version of the story of the road to Emmaus. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Then you go on, verse 12. After that, Jesus appeared in another form. Oh, I read that. Verse 14. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Okay, well, that's a condensation as well of a story where Jesus comes to the eleven gathered in the upper room. And in fact, it kind of collapses two of them together because you remember in one of the stories, he appears and and Thomas isn't there, right? And he says, "I, I won't believe unless I literally see him. And then he appears again the next week. So it seems what has happened here at the end of this book is several of these stories have gotten added in in a condensed form. Okay, so now you're sitting there thinking, am I comfortable with this? I don't know. All right, this comes to the reality of how we read the Bible and how we perceive that the Bible is this inspired work that God has given to us. See, what we're tempted to think at this point is, oh, I'm nervous about this last part because I don't think Mark wrote it or I don't know if Mark wrote it or I don't know why Mark wrote it and put it there. What this is beginning to fall into, and we've got to be careful never to fall into this trap, is the idea that the way the Bible came to be was God dictated something directly to an individual who wrote it down, and we can only trust it because that individual wrote it. We want to watch out for that trap. And let me give you an illustration as to why. Who wrote First and Second Samuel? I can guarantee it wasn't Samuel because he dies in the middle of book one. Okay? So what makes a work a work in the Bible? Obviously, First and Second Samuel is a collection of stories from the early history of Israel and the early history of the kings that developed down through time that ultimately someone who was all the way at the end of the story, because you couldn't do it at the beginning, right? It hadn't been written yet. And no one person lived that long, did they? pulled all of these stories together and put them together in a coherent line. The same thing happened with Chronicles, yet it's slightly different than 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings because it's written even later with a completely different perspective looking back. So how did the Bible come to be? Well, God led as people compiled and put these things together in a form for us. The veracity of the Bible is not in our ability to trace it back to a certain author. Here's the thing. Paul wrote lots of letters. They're not all in the Bible. There's a letter to the Laodiceans. It's even mentioned in the Bible. We have no idea what that letter said. But God has given us everything we need in here. It's not about who wrote it. It's about the impact that God wants it to have when he put it all together and the impact it has in our lives. The, The proof of the Bible is not in its author in that it was some human. The proof of the Bible is in the fact that it transforms our lives when we read it and when we live according to its word. This is how the Holy Spirit speaks to us now, through the word. It remains a living word. 
So, so as we read this, it's important for us to realize when we read through the Bible, don't let somebody come along and make you unsure or unstable about the reality of the Bible because they'll say, well, this translation has this, that translation has that, this translation left this out, this translation left that. Don't get caught in that game. Okay? The power of the Bible is not contained in a single verse. It's contained in the whole. And God has preserved the whole for us. And in fact, the manuscripts and the materials we have before us is the very best that's ever been compiled into a single place because people have been working on this for a long time and putting this together. So keep your confidence in the Word. Don't get caught in the little games here and there. Receive it, and as it transforms your life, Live that and be transformed. So, so I want to go on with this because the next thing that happens in verse 15 is this. And, and Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Okay, again, we see kind of a, a, uh, a condensing of something Jesus has done before. Do you remember the Great Commission in Matthew? where he says, go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel? Well, this is like that, but it's not identical. Verse 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who, believe, who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. All right, now I want to talk to you again about how you read the Bible. This passage says these signs will accompany those who go out on this commission that God gives. But if you know anything about uh, rural Appalachian Christianity, you will know that there are some churches who have taken these words very literally. And on the platform behind the pulpit is a little box. And if you open the little box and reach down in there, you can take out rattlesnakes and copperheads and other things. And in honor of this passage, or at least in their mind, as their sense of honoring this passage, since these are the signs of the gospel, we better have snakes and we better take them out and we better handle them as proof that we are God's people in this time. Yes, sometimes they get bit. Yes, sometimes they die. I think it's actually remarkable how often they don't. I kind of think that maybe God is merciful even sometimes when we're a little crazy in what we do with the Word. But even in this practice, they're inconsistent. Because on the one hand, they do take out the serpents, but on the other hand, they don't line up a whole bunch of cups of poison and drink those. Because that's supposed to be a sign as well. So the point I want to make with that is, is be careful while you read the Bible that you're not taking it out of context. You see, it literally does say that the believers can take up serpents. But what you need to understand is these words are spoken in the context of God's commission and God sending us out to do His will in the world. Let me ask you this. When the apostles went out, did they cast out demons? Yes, it was a sign. Did the apostles speak in tongues at some point? Yes, it was a sign. Can you think of a story where an apostle was bit by a deadly serpent, but it didn't hurt him? Can you think of a story? Paul, 
after the shipwreck on the island of Malta, he's helping out, he's gathering wood, he throws it on the fire, and a snake, it says, is driven out of the wood and attached itself to his hand. But he shook it off into the fire. And the people on Malta, this is classic Gentile thought here, so you know this, the people on Malta said, oh, he must be a murderer. For though he survived the shipwreck, fate will not let him live. And it says they waited around, waiting for him to puff up and die. But when he didn't, they changed their mind and said, no, he must be a god. All right, so that's Gentile thought. If it happened to you, you deserved it. If nothing came of it, you must be a god. So that's why we needed Jesus to come and show us a better way. But so we have that example. Paul was on a mission for God. And nothing was going to be able to stop him until he had accomplished everything the Lord had assigned for him to do. So snake on your finger, no big deal. Shake it off because it's not time for that. You still have things to do. Poison, laying hands on the sick. Understand, these descriptors are the descriptors that say these things will happen when God's people are on mission. It's not saying recreate these things in your church. It's saying if you are on God's mission, nothing will stop you until you're done. And if you reach the completion of your mission at a point that seems early, realize that even in your death, great power for the kingdom of God will be done if you came to that death in faithfulness to the Lord. So, so the, what's amazing about this is it gives us the opportunity to not have to ever live in fear because nothing can touch us until we have accomplished everything God has appointed for us to accomplish. So we faithfully go forward. We face trials. Now, it's confusing to us. We don't understand sometimes. But the promise is God will take us where we need to go and assure that our life is a blessing to all those around us. So these signs accompany the commission. Now I want to read verses 19 and 20. And we're going to go from here into our communion service. So verse 19, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So here we go again. Another condensing of an element told somewhere else. And they went out, the disciples, and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. All right. When you call Jesus Lord, remember that's something we've been talking about in this series, and and how Jesus established authority over all those different things. When you call Jesus Lord, you are saying You have authority over my life. Lord is not just an empty title. Lord means I acknowledge you as the one with authority over my life. The ones who call Jesus Lord are given this commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Okay, now you hear that, and we hear that, and our tendency is to think that means everybody's supposed to go out and talk about Jesus. Well, that's true enough in its own sense, but don't get caught in the narrowness of what it means to preach the gospel to every creature, because God has enabled everyone who believes 
to be a witness for his kingdom through their life. And don't be confused when it says go to all the world that what it means is it's only talking about places a long ways away. Because every one of you lives in a world, right? You have a world of associations. And no two of us have the exact same associations. What this means is that each of us is uniquely positioned with the ability to share with a group of people that no one else can share with. And how do we share? Well, each of us is uniquely equipped to share in the way we share. Sometimes it is telling. Sometimes it is studying with somebody. But sometimes it's just being kind and gracious to someone in need. Sometimes it's hospitality and and giving of food. Sometimes it's not even talking at all. It's just sitting with someone. Every one of us is able to participate in this great purpose of the kingdom of God to carry the message and reality of Jesus to the world. So understanding that if we're going to call Jesus Lord, it also means we are acknowledging him as the authority. And as the authority, he has said to us, go and make a difference. I want us to go into this service of communion with that in our minds. You see, I chose for a title today the word commissioned because God has commissioned every one of us to be a part of his kingdom work in the world. And he has guaranteed that we will accomplish what he has called us to accomplish. We just have to be faithful and be on the road that he set before us. So, so in as much as, as this service represents the broken body and the blood of Jesus for forgiveness of sins, I also want you to bear in mind another thing as we receive these elements today. And that is to receive these elements is to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And to acknowledge Jesus is Lord is to accept his commission in your life. So inasmuch as you receive it today and recognize in it the forgiveness of sin and all associated with that, I also want you to realize that as you take that bread, as you take that cup, you are agreeing to be about the mission of the kingdom of God all the days of your life. You are accepting your commission today. Now, it's given by grace. Not any single one of us is strong enough of our own to ever accomplish what God has purposed. That's why we take the bread. That's why we take the cup so that the Spirit of God symbolically is in us, so that we are able to do it. So I want you to think about that today as the deacons come in a moment to serve us with these emblems. Now, we practice an open communion in the Adventist church. Anyone here who in their heart believes that Jesus is Lord is is invited to participate with the community today. I will read the traditional passage from 1 Corinthians in a moment. And after I've read the verses, I will kneel and pray here for God's blessing on these emblems. You can remain in your seats. After the prayer, I will come back here and symbolically break the bread, and then the deacons will come and serve everyone. But as we go through this service, think in terms that you 
are one of the disciples that Jesus is commissioning today to carry forward the work of the kingdom. And that by taking this, not only are you accepting the forgiveness, you are also accepting the call to accomplish all that God has given you in your life. Paul wrote, For as I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask right now your blessing upon these emblems that we are about to receive. For as we receive them today, we acknowledge in them the representation of Jesus who gave his life for us. And in the cup, we recognize the blood of Jesus that forgives us and takes away our, trans our transgressions. Our faith is in Jesus, but more than just that, we also call Him Lord. And as Lord, we acknowledge He has authority in our lives. And in acknowledging His authority, we agree to the commission He's given. Lord, I pray that today in this act, that we will bear a faithful witness to our faith in Jesus as Savior and our faith in Jesus as Lord. Please fill these emblems with your Holy Spirit in a way that we will be empowered, that our sins are taken away, and we are able to live our lives by your grace for the good of God's kingdom. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.